0: they can get a cheerleader a lot cheaper than me.
1: All I'm looking for in deposition of defendant is what it is I want to start my case with.
0: It isn't about your war with that lawyer, it's about your war with injustice and your war for justice. And
1: I'd say don't be worried about how you can maximize your fee in any one given deal. Think about your reputation long term. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. Today, my guest is uh, James Boswick from San Francisco, uh, California. He is a plaintiff's uh, medical malpractice trial lawyer who is uh, an inducted member in the inner circle of advocates, uh, a past president of the International Academy of Trial Lawyers. He's a member of ABOTA. um and has had a lot of notable accomplishments. As a trial lawyer, I had the privilege of uh, hearing him talk on strokes at a a CLE with the American Board of Professional Liability Attorneys. And I looked him up during that meeting and saw he wrote a book. Um, And then I did what any curious person does, is I bought the book, and the book is uh, Acts of Omission, and it, uh, it really was a fun read and one in which I've given away a bunch of copies of it. Well, thank you for having me, Dave. Well, Jim, where I would like to start is how a person who was raised by a doctor and a nurse ends up uh, in the, the niche of plaintiff's med mouth.
0: Well, as a kid, when people said, what do you want to be when you grow up, little Jimmy, the the natural thing was to say, I want to be a doctor because that's what my dad did. And that always got the right response. And I thought that's what I wanted all the way till my senior year of college at the University of Washington, where I was a pre-med major. And then I realized that that's really not what I wanted at all. I had no idea what I wanted, but uh, you know, I I took the LSAT because other my friends were taking it, and I took it on a lark. And I happened to do really well. And I thought, well, you know, I don't want to go work, so instead I chose three years of law school, which of course is a hell of a lot more work, as you well know. And uh, while it just happened while I was in uh, law school to, lucky enough, sending out 150 resumes to 150 law firms. I got some responses and it happened to include one of the best trial law firms in the, in the country. Uh, one of the founders of the Inner Circle was the, and the, uh, my mentor, uh, Bruce Walkup. And uh, I got a job there as a law clerk. Uh, I loved it. I don't know. It's just fit. Uh, I didn't even know what a trial lawyer was. Um, but because of my medical background, because I liked medicine, because I enjoyed that and because I grew up in a medical family. Of course, I gravitated toward medical issues in cases and pretty soon I was doing medical malpractice and my dad was not too happy about that.
1: What do you think, let's, let's take you out of this, observing medical malpractice lawyers over a 50-year career, what are some qualities that make the best medical malpractice lawyers on both sides, defense and plaintiff? What are some things you see that are qualities or habits uh, that, you, that, that repeat in the great med mal lawyers? Well,
0: preparation, preparation, preparation is got to be the ultimate. I mean, the the lawyers that that don't just say, "I've been here, I know how to do this. Uh, I'm going to go in and you know, and I can I can take this guy's deposition in my sleep." That doesn't work. Uh, you have to know that case not not just the area of medicine but that case intimately you have to really really virtually memorize it i do all my own chronos still um and and i enjoy it because i am piecing it all together and then the picture becomes so clear uh and and when i have that then i know How to and and that's what the good lawyers do. I think. I think that uh, all the lawyers I know that are really successful at this, on both sides, have have those tools. They they really understand their case. They really know it. Um, And and of course, you know the 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 great the great defense lawyers are are they're people that they, they have two qualities. One of them is that they they're sensible and they know when a case needs to be resolved and they know how to deal with the other side. But the other thing is, is they have passion when it comes to representing their, their doctor or their hospital. I mean, they really have passion. It's, it's not just I'm doing a job for an insurance company to get paid by the hour. They care about those people and that makes a huge difference. When when you get to the courtroom, I think it makes a huge difference in the deposition and in the whole process, because everybody feels that.
1: Fake that? Do you like like? And and I'm I'm saying because is passion something that can be drawn up by a lawyer that doesn't actually feel passionate? Can it be developed? Can it be grown? <laughs> Or is that passion something you either have it or you don't? In other words, is it is it nature, nurture, or a combination?
0: <laughs> well, it can be nurtured, but you have it and you don't, I think. I mean, there are some people that uh, are just, they have that, I don't mean the necessarily the true believer, the crusader personality, although that can be helpful. Uh, and Lord knows there are a lot of plaintiffs lawyers that have that, and that lead us let can lead us astray, because case selection is everything. Uh, but the, you know, I I think that a, a good example uh, is a a wonderful um, defense lawyer that I knew for many many years. Um, He's now passed on, died of pancreatic cancer, unfortunately. Um, his name was Mars. That was his first name. And he, and it was a perfect name for him. He was about six, five, a bull of a man, just a bull, a bear. And he used to go out in the the woods by himself, just go, you know, and well read, uh, very, very smart. But the, the name Mars was perfect because it is the god of war. And that was Mars, and he and and when you had a case with him, it was war. But it was uh, it was on a on a on the proper plane of war. I mean, he would you know I used to say to him, Mars, get down off the table. He would object, and he'd stand up, and he'd be yelling at me, and I'd say, Get down off the table, Mars! You're going to break it. I mean, of course, we didn't have videos in those days, so the court reporter would laugh and write that down. Uh, I'm not oh, on the okay. table, but Mars in a courtroom. I remember one case we had uh, was August and hot in San Francisco, which is rare in August. Uh, and he set up a fan, and he, he 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 took off his coat and he had he was lifting his armpits in front of the fan in front of the jury while I was arguing the case. and He was drenched with sweat, and he's ah. And he argued with the judge on everything, and the jury loved him. Why? Because he was real. They knew that was what Mars was all about. They knew that that was he wasn't making that up.
1: Yeah, I hear he authenticity. I hear, I hear in Mars that he was authentic to who he really was.
0: Yes, exactly. And and the 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 doctor that had him represent them was a lucky doctor.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Well, you said something that uh, stood out to me, uh, which is case selection is everything. And obviously, we're talking about uh, practices where we do select our cases because, you know, I remember my time when I was uh, doing the defense side. Back then, we used to get a fax. You didn't select the case; you just were assigned a case. But in the plaintiff side, you do have the uh, you do have the opportunity to really select your cases, why is that so important to you in case selection? And for those of us that do do that, where we really do select cases, do you have any uh, advice, insight, lessons you can share?
0: Yeah, um, well, case selection, of course, is uh, nuanced by the the jurisdiction because in, in California with MICRA, Uh, we have limits on non-economic damages, so case selection is critical. There, it's a different kind of selection problem. Um, But overall, I think what we always have to fight in ourselves is that we do what we do, most of us that do plaintiff's work. Not all of us, but most of us want to help people. I mean, we, we we're suckers for a sad story. Uh, we really are, and especially when a family comes to you and and they have a terribly brain damaged kid or a husband that's you know uh, they're having to take care of and they have no help. It's so devastating, and or, or the, and there are other stories that aren't, aren't quite as catastrophic, but still. Um and and it's very hard to be objective because what. What drives us is not. I mean, yeah. Do we want to make money? Of course. Uh, It's business, and and do we want to uh, to uh, uh, be successful? Of course. Do we want to pay the rent? And you know, yeah. And we want to pay the payroll. Those are important considerations. Um, But it it is uh, it. What really drives us, most of us, is that we we feel empathy with these people. We we want to help them. And you have to remain objective. You have to make yourself set that aside. Maybe not aside, but you have to make yourself really look at the case and its structure and its facts uh, and try not to be blinded by the desire to help them. And I mean, it sounds easy to say. It's real hard to do. Yeah, it's real hard to do. And once in a while, we just—you know—once in a while, you got to let yourself go for it. Uh, Once in a while, you just got to say, "Well, this is stupid," (laughs) but I'm gonna—I'm gonna take this case because I maybe I can do some good for them. Maybe, maybe I can do something with it. And and when you know, and sometimes you can't. And sometimes you, it all turns around on you, and you get to do something great for them, or somewhere in the in the middle. But that, to me, is the most important part of case selection: is divorcing yourself from that desire to uh, be the good one.
1: But before we get there, what case are you most proud of? Uh, and and it doesn't have to be a big case. It's it could be, but it's when you think of your career which case is your greatest pride?
0: Wow. Uh, each one, you know, I mean, there, there's so many that have a, a special place in my heart. Um, but I, I would have to, I would have to go back to the first one that really put me and my firm on the map, which uh which was a complete long shot, crazy case. You want me to tell you about that one? Talk well, that you've you read about that because it was at the time the highest verdict in the country. Uh, and it was a case that nobody thought would go anywhere. They withdrew the offer in the middle of the trial. Uh, they offered 500,000 and we got 7.6 million. And, and that was twice what Walk of had ever gotten, and walk had the highest verdict at the time.
1: What, what year? What year was it? Seventy-eight. I watched the Walter Cronkite. I, I actually watched that before I uh, I called in today. I want to go to the moment where they withdraw the offer in trial. Tell me about what that was like. Nineteen. Uh, it's the nineteen seventies. You're trying a paraplegia case of a it it what? Quad quadriplegic case of a teenager, right?
0: She had been quadriplegic since age thirteen. She's eighteen now
1: in trial. And they pull and the he, they pull the offer. Take me to they pull the offer. What was right. that like? This
0: is, the, this is seven week trial. This is about the this is in the middle of their case. And they pulled the offer. The uh, they had put five hundred thousand on the table which is a lot of money in those days, uh, but, you know, it was not that much money. It was certainly nothing that would take care of her properly. And uh, and it, it well, that was in this, I mean, if they'd have offered, you know, a couple of million, that would have been a real problem, but of course it made it easy. That's the one thing, you know, but it's scary because, you always think, well, if really things go bad, I could fall back on that and get her something. At that point, then there was, you know, Katie barred the door, there's nothing nothing you can do, but go for it. Um, But I don't think that, I don't think I ever ever really planned to do anything but go for it with that case. Uh, It was gonna be what it was gonna be. And um, that was, uh, but it was scary. You know, and I had to tell her, and and her her, her mother had MS and was uh, really not. Uh, she was in a nursing home and unable to even you know think. And her father had abandoned the family years before, and her brother was a drug addict. So she would basically be on her own in an, in a skilled nursing facility since she was thirteen. Wow. So she had she had nobody, and and really she had me and that was at, that's an interesting thing about the case too because when we left the walk-up office this was this is my first trial after we left their office the three of us left and wa- bruce walk was brilliant he said guys take all the cases you got send us 50 percent you know and and our costs that we have in it you invent you you pay for them if you settle a case tomorrow, great. You you work on it for another five years, tough shit. <laughs> it's a bell curve. Send us money. And we said, thank you. We'll do that. It was great. Sent us up. He was smart. We sent him a bunch of money. Uh, and he said, there's one exception. There's one case that I would like to keep because that Nick Shea case I wanna do that case because I got that because of my Kelly Niles verdict, which is a $4 million verdict back in 73, I think. And he said, I wanna keep it because of that. And I, I said, great, I mean the best lawyer in the world doing Lori's case, wonderful. And he called me six months later and he said, Jim, would you take that case on the same basis? And I said, well, of course I would, but Bruce, why? And he said, you know what? That little girl calls me every week, and all she talks about is you. You're like her big brother. I think she needs you to handle the case. The kind of guy he was. Wow. I mean he had ice water in his veins, but he he was a, a very human guy underneath it all.
1: I, I wanna I don't wanna leave the case, but I wanna talk about Bruce Walker before we get back into the case what it sounds like he was an extraordinary lawyer, a great mentor what what made Bruce walk up who he was uh,
0: perfection judgment preparation the guy was his desk was always totally clean. he always had everything in the case being worked on by 30 different people. <laughs> and he knew it all he knew everything that was happening every time he started a case he had an appellate lawyer on retainer that started doing all the analysis of all the legal issues from day one Mm. he had a a nurse and a doctor that went over the case from day one i mean you talk about preparation unbelievable the man had wonderful judgment but he was low-key and he was, uh, he, he wore pants that were, you know, too high. And he, 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 he looked like when you in trial, he looked like a school teacher that had done it for 20 years. Something had come up and the judge would say, Mr. Walker, what about that? And he'd say, well, I have a brief on that, your honor. And he would, he'd have 20 of them ready to go. And the judge, jury would just say, Oh my God, this guy is just teaching us a class he's taught for 20 years. Only is that, you know, it's that case. He was amazing. He wasn't a teacher, but watching that, you learned a lot.
1: So going to that case, why is it the one that when you're thinking of, what do I personally feel pride in with the, you know, your body of work for lack of a, a more appropriate term includes a lot of cases in 50 years. You've got a lot of choices, a lot of verdicts. Uh, Why is that the one that you're choosing as the one you're most proud of?
0: I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I might choose another case tomorrow, but uh, the, uh, I was pretty young then. I think mid thirties. I had tried, I hadn't tried, I tried many cases, but they were, they weren't uh, really complicated cases. They weren't really uh, that challenging. Uh, I'd had my butt kicked. I'd, I'd had some great results, relatively speaking, but but I, I'm really proud of how I put that together. Uh, at a relatively young age, and the things I was able to accomplish against some very, very good experts and 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 some fabulous defense lawyers. Uh, and, and that case, I said, where Mars Craddock was doing that—that uh, that was Mars, and he got his client off from that case. Um, that um, I'm—that's it, it was it was a radiation myelopathy case and there were only maybe 100, 120 radiation oncologists in the world. And I talked to most of them, I think, trying to find an expert. And uh, and I finally found one in England who was retired, but he had, he was called the grandfather of radiation oncology. And when he flew in to testify, and I was preparing him the night before. I
1: thought he was senile. I thought he was, you know. <laughs> and, and I, that's so comforting. That's So comforting in a big case.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I kept wanting to talk to him. He said, "Let me go to sleep. I'll be fine in the morning." And we kicked ass in the morning.
1: Wow, that's that that that's a that's a wild.
0: jet lag. Jet lag from from you know from London. You know. He was 80
1: in his 80s. So the the book, uh, which if anybody wants to get it, it's at Acts of Omission. If you Google it in, you can buy it off Amazon or wherever, um, was, uh, I understand from talking with you before, is loosely based upon a major piece of litigation that you personally handled involving a very prominent uh, and one would even say famous trial lawyer um, who I don't I don't need to talk about their name, but they were a famous and prominent trial lawyer that you took a legal malpractice case against someone who many would consider to be an icon. What I'd like.
0: Oh, he he's probably the icon in the country. Yeah. Uh, the media loved him.
1: That's for sure. You going through the analysis to sue someone who was an icon on the same side of the aisle that you practiced on. Um, Tell me about that.
0: Yeah, that was, that was tough because uh, everybody in town that knew that I was considering it thought I was crazy. Um, Most people advised me against it. Uh, He, we knew he had the media in his, the palm of his hand, the bar, the judges. Um, I mean, he was beloved. I mean, uh, there are paintings on him still on in the building, on the buildings and, uh, on Broadway, uh, uh, and you know, downtown, um, uh, the, uh, he he was an amazing guy and an extraordinary extraordinarily accomplished guy you know who had really changed uh, our profession for the better. Uh, those of us at a law. And lot then, then you sue really-
1: him. And then you sue him. <laughs> You're like I'm gonna go after this guy. What gives you excuse my language, but to be blunt, it's it's the courage, but I'll go be direct. It's the balls. To say, I'm going to sue an 800-pound gorilla in my home state who is beloved by the trial bar. And what, what shaped that courage in you? If you had to think about what shaped that in you, what would it be?
0: Well, David did it with Goliath you know uh that it's it's that old story you know the uh somebody has to do it um this kid wasn't represented properly um, he could move his arms and legs when he got to the hospital and he lost his ability to move him in the hospital and this guy was handling the case uh, for the auto accident but never looked at the medical records and they never found out that's what happened well there was inadequate coverage if they got in the pittance and it is poor family um i mean they you know that's what i was talking about we once in a while we just we just say there's the cause that's the cause category you know um and the the father had abandoned them. The, the kid's brother was uh, was dying trying to help out. The mom was falling apart and her back was going out. You know, 24-hour care as a quadriplegic. 24-hour care. And this wasn't right. And so I... I uh, and of course, the case was way more complicated than, than I, in the book. And of course, the book is highly fictionalized. A whole bunch of stuff that happens in the book that did not happen in real life, of course. Um, that makes it fun. But, but the, a lot of these stuff is authentic in terms of the law. And a lot of the stuff is very authentic. I, that was one of my goals is to make it not like the typical TV movie, not like the typical book you read. Yeah, I, I wanted it real. I wanted it about what really happens and, and what we really go through agonizing over various things in a lawsuit but you know i and and what's not in there is that i i sued all those doctors and hospitals first
1: okay and i
0: sued him as a backup and but they had a statute defense it got really complicated and i my theory was you didn't disclose to him you there was malpractice, therefore there's fraud. You know, we've we've all tried that, but it's a crazy. But I got a couple million bucks from them. And in San Diego, that was probably the highest any quantity ever gotten at that point in time, ever. Uh, anybody. So that was one of the things that they wanted to, they wanted to say, it's 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 the highest already in San Diego. That's that should be the end of it.
1: Um, but the, well, I said, no,
0: how long was the situation.
1: trial? How long was the trial?
0: Oh, it, I think it was close to eight or nine weeks because he had to try two cases. Try a mal, medical malpractice case and I had to try the entire legal malpractice case. I had three or four experts on legal malpractice and I, had to, I probably had
1: 25 experts. Any uh, Clarence Darrow moments in the, in the trial?
0: Well, there was the one that I love, which is in the book, which actually happened in that trial, and that was when the uh, the rehab doctor got on the stand and said the kid wasn't going to live forever; and he didn't need twenty four hour care and all that. And I had a deposition on it, and that's in the book. And I loved that moment, but but to me the to me the yeah, the Clarence Darrow moment in that trial. Well, there were a couple, but and I wasn't Clarence Darrow. But the uh, I think the most fun, interesting thing is, you know, you've been there. Everybody's been there if you're a trial lawyer. This guy I was telling you about, Mars Craddock. Funny, here he is again. He was one of the key defense witnesses on 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 uh, liability that that this guy had done nothing wrong legally. He's a defense lawyer in malpractice cases. And he came in and had done nothing wrong. And I'd taken his deposition for seven hours, beating my head against a brick wall. And his the lawyer was sitting there laughing at me because he didn't have to do anything. Mars objected to all the questions, changed them all around, <laughs> and said whatever the hell he
1: wanted. Nightmare of a witness, just nightmare of a Nightmare. War.
0: A nightmare. And I read back over that deposition, getting ready for trial, and I, there wasn't one question and answer I could use. At 3 o'clock in the morning, with him going on the stand first thing in the morning, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I finally figured out what the hell to do with him. <laughs> and it was, you know judo it is martial arts take the weight of the opponent and use it against them use their force against them he said nothing was done wrong okay let's go with that so you're saying this isn't wrong so they did this that's good huh that's great that's wonderful lawyering. and then i just took him through four or five ridiculous things and then quit asking him questions. The defense yeah, they they just looked down and he he wanted to do more and it, it really worked out well. That was the only way to handle a guy like that. Just take what he was saying and shove it up the nether parts of his anatomy.
1: Yeah, that's a it's a, a it's a strategy of what am I going to do with this witness? And I know that feeling of feeling like I don't know how I'm going to make ground. And sometimes it is just show how extreme of a position that they're really trying to take, which will ultimately a jury can look at and be like, why am I believing this guy? His position is so extreme. It sounds like that's the judo move you did. Exactly. So the book, I love this summary from a review done. It says, this is a book about a trial lawyer written by a trial lawyer. But unlike virtually every other book of that genre, this book is not about a criminal defense lawyer handling a criminal case. This was in the uh, the either the Philadelphia or the Pennsylvania bar when I was researching you. And I really think that's accurate, is when I read that, as a plaintiff's med mal lawyer, when you talked about the lawyer and his line of credit, and the. It, I I I knew this was written by someone who has had a line of credit and experienced that, and it, I really I felt so uh, so much like you were speaking from uh, a place of of a lot of experience, but also making it entertaining with the with a little love story in the middle of that. It was really good. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. All right, so now I want to shift. I like to talk about practical stuff. And so, um when I prepared for today, I learned you you're described by others as a silent assassin. and And by that, what 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 they told me is, you're not going to scream and yell, but it's more like a methodical. Uh, uh, uh death by a thousand cuts it's uh it's it's a it's a much more methodical. which sounds a little bit like what you were describing of uh walk up who you described as being low-key
0: very yeah well that that is that's true i i don't i'm not flamboyant uh i'm not histrionic uh that doesn't work with me as you know we've all learned you gotta be yourself, uh, and I'm kind of a low-key guy. But I, uh, but I think things through, and I'm kind of logical. So I like to use that uh, uh, to. And so when I when I take a deposition or when I cross-examine in trial, uh, it's kind of a chess game. I, I I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing, but they don't usually. And I ask about this here, and then I ask about that over there, and then I ask about this over here. And in the end, you put them together and voila, you have the answer. And my personal view is that if you can, as I mean, a lot of lawyers save it for trial. I don't very rarely that I save things for trial, because I've saved things for trial and had them not work out at all. and you know, I want to know if it's going to work or not. And if it worked in deposition, in that case is going to settle. Um, and guess what? That's better for the client. Uh, and it, it, so I, I like to, uh, if I can, I mean, I like to get a defendant to admit liability and deposition. And I've been pretty damn successful with that.
1: Let's, let's, let's talk about that low key nature, uh, for the lawyer who's listening to this, where they are more low key and less kind of overtly dramatic, um, what do you tell to their insecurity over how am I going to fight these 800 pound lions who are so dramatic, the insecurity over, uh, how can I persuade a jury if I'm really low key over the pictures in their head over, you know, what a persuasive lawyer looks like as somebody who has been very successful being yourself in low key and logical and methodical, how would you encourage the lawyers who are feeling a little insecure because they're, they they do not fit the mold of, uh, of a Mars, or whoever the functional equivalent would be on the other side, they're not flamboyant, they're not naturally aggressive, how would you encourage them?
0: Well, I would encourage them to remember that it's rare that jurors like flamboyance. It's rare that jurors like uh, the, uh, the histrionic stuff. They usually react negatively to that. Uh, unless they sense in that person that that's really them, unless they sense that's coming from the heart, and then they'll let them get away with it. But I think it's re- important to remember that they're just letting them get away with it. They don't necessarily like it. Mm. And 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 I think jurors jurors like a person that's consistent. I think they like a person that seems to be prepared, and they like a person that's real. And and I think that. If, when that, the jury understands that persona and sees what, what you've done with your case, if your case is well prepared, they will appreciate it. They appreciate something well presented. They appreciate something well thought out. They appreciate being taken through it and have it, they love to be learned. They love to learn. And if you, if you teach them, about something interesting and you make it interesting because you care and it's interesting to you, that will come across to them. And you can, you know, you can be methodical and you can be low key about it and they will appreciate that. They don't come in there to be entertained. Most of them don't want to be there, (laughs) you know, Uh, but they do like learning and they do understand the system and they, they actually, most of them that do it, end up really enjoying the process and those that don't are the ones that say the lawyers were really nasty or the lawyers that were horrible or they didn't they weren't prepared they didn't know what they were doing that's what they don't like Uh, if a person's being real they'll appreciate that
1: let's get practical and uh i'm going to run through different parts of the practice of law and then I'm, I'd love for you to respond with a thought, idea, or suggestion on the best way to handle this particular area that you've learned in your career. So, for example, uh, if we start with uh, preparing a client for deposition.
0: Okay. Um, if you can... I think the most important thing is to make them understand I mean, You're going to have them understand all the important things that, you know, but they have to be comfortable in their own skin. And so I think the two most important things to get across to them is the case is the case. You're not the case. You are the case in the sense that you're the person that is hurt, but you can't, you're not going to destroy the case. If you mess up, you're human. That's okay. The case is still going to be what it is. I think you've got to take that off them because a lot of them come in thinking they're going to, what if I do something wrong and I ruin my case? Or, you know, a mother for, for the child, the same thing. I mean, the, that's even more so. I think when you can, and there may be some areas that are really important, like a statute limitation issue, and when did you discover this? And they got to be carefully prepared on that. But I think it's real important to lessen that anxiety. I think they do better. And the other thing that I've, I've learned over the years, and whenever I don't do it, I wish I, 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 I say that was stupid again, um, is, is you got to cross examine them yourself you've got to have them experience having the questions asked so that they get comfortable with it's one thing to talk about it's another thing to actually answer questions and well wait a minute i'm the defense lawyer i'm not me you're talking to the defense lawyer and i'm asking you this 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 and then they start oh okay that's how it works people don't know and they think they think they know from watching tv that of course as we know, they don't, because that's not how it works. Um, I think those two things are really important.
1: What is a piece of advice you would give on taking effective depositions?
0: Mm-hmm. We keep coming back the same thing, don't we? Uh, you've got to know your case absolutely cold. You have to have made the medicine your own. You have to understand as much as you can about what made the person tick, uh, why they were doing what they were doing, you have to figure that out. You have to use your experts to really understand that. But then you have to understand all the details about what happened. And you have to get that all in your head to the point. And then I think the the other thing that, to me, most important, I write out lots of questions. Maybe people don't, but I write out lots of questions Uh, Maybe pages of questions. You know when I look at them? At the end of the deposition. Because it's the process of writing them out that prepares your head. But when you go to take the deposition, don't be looking at any questions. Don't be looking at anything. Go with your head. Go with what you know about the case. And listen to the person that you're deposing. You will hear things. You will hear so much. The inflection, you pick up on stuff, then you have to follow up on that. And and that's where you get it all. Uh, at the end, I look at the list of questions I had and see if I missed any. Usually I didn't.
1: Dealing with nasty co-counsel, recalcitrant, difficult. If you were to give counsel and advice to the people listening to this, what's the best piece of advice?
0: Don't rise to the bait. Often they're doing it on purpose. That's how they function. They're trying to get you to be the same way. Uh, it you lose focus if you do that. Uh, and in the end, they've got a job to do. And and if and I have had I, I, you know thousands of those kinds of interactions over the last fifty plus years. And what I always do is I always try to reset. I always try to, to go back and say, okay, maybe on that conversation, or maybe I call them back later or take, take advantage of another opportunity. And I say, let's, let's, uh, you know, we've gotten off on a wrong foot here. And, you know, I, I don't think you like, be in that way anymore, that I like being that way or having somebody be that way to me, and I don't want to be that way to you, or however you handle it, and you know, let's let's find a way to skin this cat that doesn't it negatively affect your client and doesn't negatively affect my client. Uh, that's probably the biggest single bit of advice I could give to any young lawyer, and I've taught a lot of them, and, and it's stop fighting the because sometimes when you get that nasty, horrible uh, action on the other side, you you may have started it by something you've done by thinking that you're protecting your client. And you may be you're maybe being too confrontational. Uh, maybe you should adjust your approach. And in the end, if you can't change them, you can't change them. But don't rise to the bay. Don't go to their level.
1: Let's talk about careers. Uh, it sounds like from tracing law school to the walk-up law firm to starting your own firm, uh, over the years, you've had a lot of lawyers that you've interacted with. What And you currently work with one of your sons, who I had the privilege of, of talking to. What advice do you think are, is a good piece of advice on having a good career career satisfaction um, what what allows a lawyer to not just make a living but have a good life and feel satisfaction on where they're practicing? what advice do you have there?
0: well uh, I think that each person has to has to after they've gotten to know their, what they're doing, they have to look inside themselves and ask themselves the critical, important question of, is this me? Is this for me? Is this my right for this? Is this right for me? Uh, and, and some people try to put a round peg in a square hole, and they're never happy. And they keep trying to find other techniques to do it, but, but it's not the right for them. It's not right for them. Um, some people aren't trial orders. Uh, some people don't like confrontation. Uh, we can do it nicely, but if we confront every day. We confront our clients sometimes. We try not to. Uh you, you're confronting the, the other side all the time in a nice way. You try to do it in a nice way. You're confronting in court. You're confronting a judge. Uh, it's it's confrontational. That is the nature of the beast, and particularly true for a trial lawyer. And some people just aren't made for that, and they don't realize it, and they don't know why they're unhappy. So I think that's a the place to start. Um, and if, you know, if you do really love it, then you start developing those skills. But I think that's the most important thing I could tell anybody is, you know, some people fit this mold and some people don't. And that doesn't mean you aren't going to be great at something else.
1: Yeah, that's, that's very good advice. Um, mental health. How, how old are you? Am I allowed to ask that question?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'll be 79 in January.
1: Okay. You're 79 years old. You look great. You look healthy. You're still actively practicing. um,
0: 50%. What's that? 150%. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Full bore. I'm
1: loving it. What have you done to stay mentally healthy? Um, What have you personally done to kind of not become overly cynical, overly discouraged, burnt out, All the things that, you know, practicing till you're 79 is not the norm of someone who loves it. What have you done to cultivate a healthy mental health?
0: As I look back over a lot of years of doing this, I would say there are a couple of key things. I would say one of them is exercise. Uh, I've always really. I was kind of, I mean, I was getting some of those results in the mid thirties, but I wasn't exercising and I was getting, uh, it was really, the stress was really eating me up and, um, I started having kids late, you know, and there was a lot of pressure. There were a lot of economic pressures and I started running and it, it, my blood pressure went down. Uh, My uh, lipids went down, Um, my my attitude and anxiety and my anxiety went down and my attitude went up. Uh, And I was I was more able to cope with the stuff we cope with every day. And you don't have to be a trialer to cope with stuff. You know, Um, the uh, we all have things in our lives and that's helped me immensely. So that's I think, um, you know, uh, I eat well and I I like a couple of glasses of wine at night that helps um, but uh, I don't think it's that I think it's the exercise and the other thing is that I I try not to you know they the old the law is a jealous mistress thing uh, I try not to have it be able to play that role I try not to have it be the be all and end all in my life. I love it, but I love vacations. I I love doing things with the family. I, I try not to let it interfere with that. I try to carve out my own time, uh, and get away from it. When you're fly fishing, you can't think about anything else, but how to tie that fly right and how you know, and where to put it. Uh, it, it's it's it requires a whole different mindset than trying a case, and that's a good thing to do once in a while. Um, I don't know. I and you know, I'm lucky because I'm kind of an upbeat person. I I think I've always looked on the positive side. I'm lucky that way. That I can't they can't give people advice to be that way because you are or you aren't. It's chemical, I suspect, or genetic. But I'm lucky that way.
1: Yes. Well, that's a, it's a good thing to work on. Let me, uh, let me ask you this. Hardest loss or failure in life or law, and then, and then how you walk through it, what you learned walking through it. So it's less about the loss. We identify it, but really kind of what you learned walking through a hard loss or a hard failure.
0: And uh, there's no trial lawyer that hadn't had a lot of those. Um, if you've tried enough cases, you've had a lot of horrible, difficult failures. But I, I think perhaps the worst loss or failure, which was my failure, was when one day... uh i realized that my bookkeeper who i thought had had my back for 10 years had been systematically stealing from us and had stolen 10 million dollars and all the things we thought we had in the bank and all the things we thought we had in this account and all the bills we thought had been paid and taxes we thought had been paid He had been shredding that stuff, and he had been the notices. And the worst of it was there were $3 million that was in client's money in the trust account that was gone. And I had to come up with that money out of nowhere in 30 days. Had to be there for him. And I didn't have any idea how I was going to do it or, you know, what was going to happen. And uh, I had to go home and tell my wife that I wouldn't blame her if she uh, divorced me. Um, and and what I learned from it is that people you care about, the people who care about you, they, they, they come through for you. Mm. They're there for you. My partner... Who, who who didn't even believe that it was gone? Thought I had probably spent it. <laughs> um, then he, he was he was there for me the whole time, and my wife was there for me, and my friends. Mm. And I had one one friend that uh, you know that loaned me a just a piece of what I needed, but you know a significant amount of money, and. And I borrowed here, I borrowed there. Um, went to the bankers, you know, did all of that. Um, worked really hard on a couple of cases, and one really came through.
1: Um,
0: but it was—I am—that happened many years ago, and I'm still getting over it.
1: Wow, that—that is—I uh, really appreciate you sharing that. You don't find that when you uh, when you Google you. that story is not the one that comes up. So I, I really appreciate you sharing it. Can I press in a little further, of on the other side of it when, because what it, what it rises up in me when I hear that is one, just panic, like personal panic over how you avoid that happening. What, what, safeguards or it, 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 and I know we can't always pre- prevent everything and I'm reminded we want to blame ourselves because then we believe we have some more control than we usually have but if you if you did indulge that side it, can you are there any learning lessons to prevent that yes yeah
0: two well there are many, but, uh, I think there's two kind of countervailing ones. Um, one is you have to have safeguards. I, I flew 150, 200,000 miles a year. I was all over the country doing experts. I was doing trials in, in a, different places. Uh, I was, um, you know, I practiced in lots of different states and all over California and I trusted. And the two things include don't not trust. I don't want the message to be you can't trust anybody because I think I don't want to live my life that way. But I've, I keep asking myself, can I trust? But the other thing is, you know, what was it Reagan said? You know, trust and then uh, uh, check. <laughs> you know, you see,
1: I think he said trust verify. but verify. Yeah. Trust and verify. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have two questions I ask everyone that I have the chance to talk to. And the first one is, if you were to give one piece of life advice or law advice, career advice to people who are in the first stage of their career, say 25 to 35, what piece of advice would you give them?
0: Different now People that age than it was when I was that age. It's really different. Uh, now I would say to them, you can do anything. I mean, he, I, I wrote a freaking book, you know, and I've never written anything, not even a good brief. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote, you know, I wrote a book. I mean, it, 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 keep your options open. And look for what makes you happy. I got lucky, I, you know. I found something that made me happy. It, figure out, you know, what and if 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 twenty five to thirty five, you're not at a stage nowadays. We were back in my age, that back in the day, you're supposed to know everything about that. You have your whole life together, having kids. Uh, you don't have to now. And you're going to live longer. You you've got more options. Um, so figure out what's right for you, what works for you, and realize that you, you keep an open mind to doing other stuff too, at the same time maybe. Um, and if I can write a book, you can do anything.
1: Second group of people, um, they're through the first part of their career, they have some stability in terms of their professional career they're further along in life. Let's say uh, fifty years old, but they still have, they, they still have health. They still have energy. They still have excitement. What 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 piece of advice would you give to those people?
0: Well, I think I think of myself, and I think of all the people I know that have gone through that time frame and that age, and and the people that have been happy and the people that haven't, and, and the people that have been happy have been the people that have uh, identified what is good for them, what is, what is fulfilling their lives, uh, and, and what is important, the things that are important, and it isn't always work. Uh, I think the biggest mistake people make in that time frame, in that age, is that they put everything into work, everything into their career, everything into that, and they they miss out on incredibly important things with family, uh, with their marriage, with uh, friends, with things that are going to expand you as a person, Uh, you know, vacation time, reading, uh, getting interested in other things, hobbies, you know, you don't start a hobby when you retire at 70 or 75 or like me and in my 80s someday I'm what the hell am I gonna do then uh, right you know but uh, you should be doing that stuff back then
1: that's that's and, so good that's so good that, yeah. that is so good it a, really is
0: you have a fully rounded life and and uh, and you need to look for that and you need to and it have to you have to really go after it I mean, you know, it doesn't just happen. You have to make yourself open to it and do it.
1: Yes. You are not the first person that that's the issue that they would, they would choose to tackle. Um, personal, favorite vacation place in the world? Well, I love Italy. But, um, but Patagonia,
0: on my 70th birthday, was one of the best trips ever.
1: Well, Jim, thank you for your time and your generosity, and uh, I really appreciate uh, the work you've done, uh, the career you've had. I appreciate, you know, just talking to your son. I can tell you've invested in your family well, and just personally, your book, uh, Acts of Omission, it was a a joy for me to read, and I'm looking forward to the next one.
0: I'm looking forward to it, too.
1: What are you doing? When
0: are we going to get it? Well, the screenplay, you know, I'm, I'm revising the screenplay right now. Okay. It, it, you know, the, uh, it's, I think the movie thing's going to happen. We'll see. Uh, but I've, I've got the first draft and I'm revising it. Who, who plays they, you? Uh,
1: who plays you? Let's, let's let's cover that question. If you were to choose... Bradley, Bradley Cooper? <laughs> That's a good choice. Who wouldn't choose Bradley Cooper?
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> I enjoyed it. Are you planning on writing the second one? Oh yeah. I've Will. got a
0: whole bunch a whole bunch of things in my head. I mean I gotta find out what happens to those people, right?
1: You know? We we've got to know. We have to know. Yeah.